I'd like to begin with a word of prayer, if you'd bow with me. My heart's desire, Lord, is that my words might come like the rain, that they might fall like dew upon the tender shoots. For I declare your name, O God, and describe greatness to you. I pray that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit right now. I pray that you would protect us from the evil one who is a God of deceit and confusion and distraction. And I pray that you would transform lives and cause us to be besotted with your greatness. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In the material that I got to give me guidance and preparation, there was one sentence that leaped off the page. I don't know who wrote it. I assume it may have come from Dr. Sproul. And the sentence was this. Our goal in the conference is to examine the nature of God as evidenced through his bountiful grace. Now, what was so characteristically Ligonier and biblical about that was the order of things. We are here to examine God through grace, not grace through God. I don't know if the order grips you or sounds significant to you in our cultural context like it does me, but for me it's tremendously important. Is God made a means to grace in your life? Or is grace made a means to God? Does the quest of your life passion of your heart, the labor of your mind, terminate on God in whom we live and move and have our being so that grace becomes unspeakably precious because it carries us safe to God? Or is God brought in alongside your planning and your techniques and your strategies and your therapies, and your treatments, in the hope that he might be the means of some manifold graces in your church and in your life. I want to press this because I think it makes a tremendous difference whether the ultimate treasure in your life is the grace of God or the God of grace. I think the most fundamental question standing before American evangelicalism today is whether we will put God or ourselves at the center of grace. And my passion this morning is to press with all my might the God-centeredness of saving grace. That we cherish saving grace because it brings us to God. We do not cherish God because he brings us grace. 
Now the way I want to do this is to take about 10 illustrations from the Bible. And I don't have time to do 10, so I will linger over some and I will pass over others. But I'll mention them. So we'll see if we can do 10. 10 biblical pointers to the God-centeredness of saving grace. Number one. The God-centeredness of saving grace is seen in the origin of that grace. There are some impossibilities that go with being an infinite, all-sufficient, divine being. Some impossibilities. God cannot be deficient. God cannot be defective. He cannot be needy. And therefore, he cannot relate to you and me out of a need for our works or our value or our distinctives in any way. He can relate to us only out of fullness, out of sufficiency, and therefore out of freedom. And that's the source of grace. Oh, the depth of the riches and the knowledge and the wisdom of God. How unsearchable are his ways and how inscrutable are his judgments. Who has known the mind of the Lord so as to become his counselor? Or who has given him a gift so as to be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. You cannot negotiate with God because everything you have, every currency, every asset, every work, every millimeter of desire for him came from him, belongs to him. You have nothing with which to barter. The source of his Grace is his absolute, complete self-sufficiency. Now, I have never been to a Ligonier conference before, and I don't know the rules. I don't know if it's proper to respond to other speakers' addresses. So I will just risk it, because as I watch R.C. Sproul, he seems like a sort of rough-and-tumble kind of guy, and... You, you do things like this. This issue of the self-sufficiency of God raises for me a very serious question about the ethic of gratitude and duty that was unfolded for us last night. It makes me real uneasy with what I heard. And I want to raise some questions for you, just questions. I'm not sure. You can't really judge a theology or an ethic on a 30-minute talk. And so we'll, we'll discuss this maybe this afternoon. But let me try out some questions on you about the implications of the self-sufficiency of God for a duty-slash-gratitude ethic. Since repayment of the debt we owe to grace is absolutely impossible. And since if it were possible, it would nullify grace and turn it into a business transaction, should we make that the description of our whole moral life? 
Second question. Does not a gratitude ethic run the risk of minimizing grace by leaving it mainly in the past and neglecting the moral significance of tomorrow's grace? The duty of my next hour's obedience is it to be lived mainly in the power of gratitude for past grace or in the confidence of future grace? Would God get more glory if Moses left Egypt out of gratitude for the grace of the bulrushes or out of a massive confidence that to suffer with the people of God is a greater wealth of grace and a look to the reward of grace as that which could sustain him for another 40 years with a rebellious people. How did God reason with Joshua when he was confronted with the duty of radical life-risking obedience in the promised land? Did he say mainly be grateful and do your duty? Or did he say, fear not, for the Lord your God will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Count on future grace and glut yourself on it. Throw yourself into it and let it be the strength of your life. In a word, is the origin of grace in the infinite self-sufficiency of God glorified best by a past-oriented ethic of debt and duty or is it glorified more by a future-oriented ethic of hope and joy? I hope we talk about it this afternoon. My first point, this is point number one, can you believe I have ten? My first point is the self-sufficiency of God is the origin of grace. Point number two, the God-centeredness of saving grace is seen in the ultimate gift that that grace gives to us, namely God. The explosive, radiant, overflowing fountain of God's self-sufficiency has an impulse in it to be known, to be loved, to be cherished, to be enjoyed, and that impulse I call grace. But the gift of grace, which is to be known, which is to be loved, which is to be cherished, and which is to be enjoyed, is the greatest gift imaginable, namely God himself. As a heart longs for the flowing spring, so my soul longs for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for thee. My soul longs for God. O God, thou art my God, I seek thee. My soul thirsts for thee. My heart longs for thee as in a dry and weary land where no water is. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And on earth there is nothing that I desire besides thee. My flesh and my heart may fail, but thou art the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I go to the altar of God, to God 
my exceeding joy. The second thing that exalts the God-centeredness of saving grace is that the gift of saving grace is nothing greater than God himself. Point number three. The God-centeredness of saving grace is seen in that the basic response that grace demands is joyful trust. 2 Corinthians 1.24, Paul says this amazing sentence about his whole ministry. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, as though they were interchangeable. And he writes to the Philippians in 125 and says, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your advancement and joy of faith. His ministry, his reason for staying on planet earth was to advance the joy of faith. That is the fundamental requirement of the grace of God when it comes to us in the gospel. Philippians 4, 6, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Psalm 37, 4, a commandment. Delight yourself in the Lord. The most fundamental command of grace is to be satisfied with God. The reason for this is that no other command exalts God more. I went to the speaker's luncheon yesterday. And at the speaker's luncheon, um, Russell and Lisa Johnson, who helped put this thing together, this conference, were given a beautiful gift by Ligonier Ministries as a token of their praise and appreciation for their servanthood. And much was made about the sacrifice that they made, not able to have Thanksgiving in their own dining room because of boxes everywhere. And they were extolled, a kind of earthly, well done, good and faithful servant. And when R.C. Sproul was done presenting this beautiful uh, gift to them, he said, speech, make a speech to the couple. And he got a speech. Four words. It was our pleasure. Now why did Lisa say that? Why didn't she say it was our duty and thank you for recognizing our sacrifices? Because we dutifully endured them. Why did she say it was our pleasure? There's a real easy answer to that. And it's profound. Because when you respond to someone that way, for whom you have served, you honor them more than if you talk about the weight of the sacrifice of the duty that you had to perform for them. The reason we say things like, it's my pleasure, is to deflect 
the honor from ourselves back onto the person that we have served. And when you get to heaven and God says to you, well done, good and faithful servant, if you want to be tipped off ahead of time how to give him the glory, use four words. Was my pleasure, Lord. The response of delight gives God more honor than the response of mere duty. Lo, says the Lord, lo, I come in the roll of the book. It is written of me, I delight to do thy will. O oh my God, thy law is written on my heart. That's the Messiah talking. So my third point is that the centrality of the grace of God or the centrality of God in saving grace is that the command of grace is the command for that which will give God the most glory, namely a command to be satisfied in him. One of the things that has gripped me for the last 15 years was an awesome discovery, namely that God's passion to be glorified and my passion to be satisfied do not have to collide in the universe. But in the moment of worship through Jesus Christ, they can come to simultaneous fulfillment because God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. Which is why R.C. Sproul was glorified yesterday by the words, R.C., it was my pleasure to serve you. Number four. Nobody responds to God like this. Nobody. Our hearts are hard and dead and blind, and rebellious, and saturated with love for the world, finding pleasure in everything but God. And so the fourth biblical evidence of the God-centeredness of saving grace is the biblical description of the essence of evil, namely in Jeremiah 2. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The essence of sin is to look the fountain of life in the face and say no thank you and to spend the rest of our lives making toys and enterprises and hobbies and families and relationships and all kinds of activities and quests so as to suck out of them some kind of satisfaction and life and they will not yield. Therefore, the biblical definition of sin shows that at the center of saving grace, which must rescue us from this love affair with everything but God, saving grace that does that rescue is God-centered. Number five, the God-centeredness of saving grace is seen in God's raising us from spiritual death. If any of us, 
us is going to be saved, if our hearts are going to be transformed so that we can actually delight in God instead of drink and sex and money and power and even more than family and health and life itself, thy steadfast love, O oh God, is better than life. If that's going to happen, something absolutely stunning, earth-shaking, miraculous has got to go on inside this heart. And it's described in a lot of ways, and I'll pass over some of them, but let's just bank on this one for a minute. Ephesians 2, 5, and 6. We who were dead in trespasses, God made alive together with Christ, but in... comes this grammatical intrusion. By grace you've been saved. And then he picks the sentence up again. And raised us with him. Now why did he do that grammatically? Why such a clumsy sentence? Why not wait till you get to the end of the sentence and say, by grace you saved? He does say it in verse 8. But right here in the middle, we who were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive, and he's going to go on and say, and he raised us with him, and he butts in right there, and he says, by grace you have been saved. And I think the reason is because he wants to make grace clear and he wants to make deadness clear. You are raised from the dead by grace. Dead people don't negotiate. Dead people don't work. Dead people don't believe. Dead people don't choose God. The only hope for dead people is butt in. Butt into the grave with grace. Sovereign, awesome, wild, wonderful, life-giving, free, sovereign grace. If you have one whisper of desire for God today, you owe it to the triumph of grace in your life. Number six, here I'm going to start passing over. The centrality of grace is seen, or the centrality of God is seen in saving grace through the, the effectual calling of God. 2 Timothy 1.9, we were called not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he granted us in Christ Jesus before the world was. Number seven. The centrality of God is seen in saving grace by the act of new creation. In a sense, we were not. The being that can delight in God was not. And the God who calls things which were not into being said, according to 2 Corinthians 4, 6, let light shine out of darkness. He spoke into being the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we became a living being with heart supple to God. Number eight, the centrality of God in saving grace is seen in God's sovereign act of begetting his own children. We don't choose to be raised. We don't choose to be called. We don't choose to be created. And we didn't choose to be born again. Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God have you become a child of God who then, because of that, receives the Lord. Number nine, 
I wish we had an hour on this one. I hate to pass over the cross so quickly, but in a big conference, you just can't do everything that grace has to do. And I know R.C. Sproul feels more frustrated about this than I do. But the cross of Christ, the ground of grace, is God-centered. Romans 3, 24 to 25, God gave his son to be a propitiation by his blood. And in giving him, he demonstrated his righteousness because in former times he passed over former sins. It was to demonstrate his righteousness that he is both righteous and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. The cross is radically God-exalting, vindicating to the righteousness of God. So right at the center of the act of grace and mercy and the ground of it, God is the center being exalted. But instead of lingering over any of these, I want to close with one last extended reflection on the first and primal grace from which all of these come, namely the grace of election and the centrality of God in the grace of election. If God exalts himself by uh, raising sinners from the dead and calling them out of darkness and creating them out of nothing and begetting them and atoning for them, he is obviously making some choices here. Who he does that for? How does he make those choices? What is the, the uh, line according to which he makes these choices? Ephesians 1.4 says the choices were made before the foundation of the world. And the text that R.C. Sproul read last night, Romans 9.11, makes clear that the choice is not made with any reference to our having done good or evil. Before they had done anything good or evil, he chose to favor Jacob over Esau. Before they had done anything good or evil. So we're talking about unconditional election. What then does God base his election on? What's guiding him as he elects? Well, that verse 11 points us toward an answer. He set his favor on Jacob, not Esau. Why? Here's the phrase from verse 11 of Romans 9. In order that... God's purpose, key word, which accords with election, the purpose isn't election, it is beneath it and guiding it, that God's purpose, which accords with election, might remain. Therefore, he does not base his election on anything he sees in Jacob or Esau, but solely on what? And the answer is given 11 verses later. Verses 22 and 23 of Romans 9. What if God, now find his purpose in these words, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power endured with much long suffering, the vessels of wrath 
prepared for destruction, in order that he might make known the wealth of his glory on the vessels of mercy, prepared beforehand for glory. <coughs> What's the purpose of God in those verses? The purpose of God is to make known the incomparable riches of his glory for the enjoyment of the vessels of mercy. And the riches of the glory of God that will be spread before us as a banquet forever and ever and ever for our enjoyment in the kingdom includes the whole panorama of his perfections, including wrath and power. What if desiring to make known his wrath and to make known his power in order that he might display the riches of his glory to the vessels of mercy? The glory of God's Grace and mercy will shine all the brighter against the black backdrop of wrath and judgment and sin. And the affection, the love, the zeal, the white-hot worship will flow all the more intensely from our hearts when we see the glory of God against that backdrop and appreciate not only the grace of God, but the grace of God all the more fully against the backdrop of wrath and judgment. What moves me most, and with this I close, in what I have said personally in my own life is that God-centered grace brings together the two great passions of the universe. For me, the gospel of the grace of God is the bringing together of the two great passions of the universe, such as they will not collide for God's people. God's passion to be glorified and my passion to be satisfied. And the reason they do not collide is because God-centered grace says God is most glorified in me when I am everlastingly and perfectly satisfied in Him. Let's pray. Almighty God and gracious Heavenly Father, my heart's desire again, now as I close, is that you would come and protect these people from anything amiss that I may have said, and that you would fill them with a passion and a delight and an obedience to anything true that I have spoken from your word, in order that you might get the glory and that an obedience of faith would be born radically for the sake of the nations and for the sake of your name. 
through Jesus Christ, I pray.